Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're continuing our House Rules series this morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. And uh, if you missed any of the sermons so far, you can go to our website, ccolumbia.org, and you can check out the, um, the, the ones that you missed there. Or you can go to our iTunes or Google Play page. You can go to our YouTube channel or our Facebook channel at Calvary Chapel of Columbia, and you'll find uh, our sermons and, and different things there um, on, on those various different resources. So stand with me, and we're going to read our text this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writing to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, trying to organize this church and minister to these wayward people, and there's all kinds of stuff going on there with false teachers and false doctrine and stuff. He, he comes to a place in 1 Timothy chapter 2 where he says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of our God, of, of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. Good thing Paul put that in there. A, a, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Verse 8, I desire, that, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Now we ask you to just quiet our hearts, Lord. Take the distractions from our minds and let us just focus on what you want to say to us this morning. Lord, we, we know that the enemy would want to steal the seed this morning. But God, we pray that our hearts would be intent on hearing you. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Help us to know what you want us to know this morning. Come by your spirit and speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is urging Timothy to fulfill his calling. And you remember that he, he, he said at the end of the chapter, wage the good warfare. They told him how to do it by holding sound doctrine, faith, and a good conscience. So we come to chapter 2. Paul moves from this sort of personal exhortation to Timothy in chapter 1 to this sort of corporate organization of the church. And, and we're going to go through that in the next few chapters as Paul starts to tell Timothy, here's what the church should look like when you gather. This is exactly how it should be. And these are the kind of things that you don't. It's sort of the do's and don'ts of the gathering of the corporate body of of. of of the church. And so um, the, the, the first thing that we find Paul addressing as he moves into this section is he addresses the topic of prayer. Perhaps the church of Ephesus, much like many churches in our culture today, had forsaken the corporate prayer time. 
where they are not praying together corporately, but they have, they've said, well, we, we, we're, we're, well, for whatever reason, we're, we're not doing that. So Paul wants to exhort Timothy now to instill in the hearts of the people the priority of corporate prayer. That's the title of my message this morning, The Priority of Corporate Prayer. And there's, there's six different things I want to share with you regarding the priority of prayer from our text this morning. The first thing is the position of corporate prayer. Notice, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, first of all. Now that phrase is not speaking of time, like it should be the very first thing that we do, even though oftentimes that is the very first thing we do as we pray. But he's not speaking about time, he's speaking about priority. He's speaking about, um, first of all, in terms of importance. He's, he's saying this is a very, very important thing, that you pray corporately. He's saying you have to make prayer a priority in the church. It should be a primary activity when God's people gather, not a secondary thing. Prayer should hold a priority in the church. What does this say about prayer, brothers and sisters? Talks about the importance of prayer, doesn't it? It tells us that prayer is vital to the life of the church. Warren Wearsby said it like this, the local church does not pray because it's the expected thing to do. It prays because prayer is vital to the life of the local church. The Holy Spirit works in the church through prayer and the Word of God. The church that prays will have power and will make a lasting impact for Christ. If you want to see God move mightily in your life, in the life of the body that you gather with, then you need to pray. You need to pray. Prayer is incredibly powerful. I love the Spurgeon story where he said, he was selling his church building, and he was preparing for that, and he had somebody come look at it, and the guy said, I want to see what powers this place. So Spurgeon took him downstairs and took him, led him through these hallways to what this man believes to be the boiler room. But Spurgeon opens up a door where there's a group of men praying, and he says, this is what powers this place. Prayer powers the believer, and prayer powers the church. Prayer is vital to, to, to our gathering, you guys. We, we, we should be praying people. It is, it, it's something that um, is so important, and there's a, several reasons for that. Number one, prayer says, God, I am dependent on you. I can't do it on my own. It's a surrender to God that says, I, I can't do it, Lord. I am dependent on you. It also helps us align our hearts with his. When we pray and we say, your will be done, like Jesus taught us to pray, what we're really saying is, God, align my heart with yours. I want to do your will. Maybe the thing I'm asking for isn't exactly what you want, but I'm saying, Lord, align my heart with yours. So it helps us align our hearts. Uh, scholar E.M. Bounds said this. He said, prayer makes a godly man, puts within him the mind of Christ, the mind of humility, of surrender, of service, of pity, and of prayer. If we really pray, we will become more like God or else we will quit praying. Or else we will quit praying. Lastly, prayer is of utter importance to the gathering of God's people because it makes the impossible possible. When we can't, God can. 
When we can't, God can. God moves according to his will at the petition of his people. You know that? He moves according to the petition of his people, but it always has to be in line with his will. Jesus set the priority of prayer in the public gathering when he came to the temple, remember? And he cast out the, 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 the thieves and all those um, robbers there, and, and he said in Mark chapter 11, verse 17, it is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And isn't that true today? It's still the same, folks. There is nothing new under the sun. <laughs> there are places that are called houses of prayer, but there are also many, many churches that are den of robbers. Now, how sad is that? God's house is called to be a house of prayer. That means God's people have to be a people of prayer, not just privately, but corporately. When we come together and, and, and uh, we don't just tell someone, you know, as we come together as a body and somebody says, you know, shares a need with you and say, oh, I'll pray for you. Don't do that. Pray for them right there. Just stop what you're doing and say, hey, let me pray for you right now. Wouldn't it be awesome if you walked through the hallways of this church and you saw prayer, people praying over people all over the place? Wouldn't that be awesome? We should be doing that. That's the idea is we come together, we believe in a God who hears our prayers and who answers our prayers, and therefore we're going to pray for you. And if your brain is anything like mine, then you may forget in 10, 10 minutes. So you, you, you should pray for that person right there. I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm just saying that would be a good thing. If I tell you what to do, that automatically puts up the, I'm not doing that. Who's that guy I think he is? You know? We gather Sunday mornings at 9.15 a.m. I invite you to come and pray with us. We're praying for the service. We're praying that God will have his way in us and that he will move in this place. Um, you know, you, we're, we're starting a second and fourth Sunday of the month corporate prayer at 1.30. Here's some opportunities for you to do what the Bible says, to get engaged in the corporate prayer times uh, of God's people. I also want to encourage home fellowships not to neglect prayer. Uh, I've led many home fellowships. I've also, you know, in various, even in youth group and things like that, oftentimes we pray at the end, right? Oh, okay, now it's prayer time. But usually it's like 10 minutes to the end and we're like, okay, it's prayer time, so rush it up. You know, let's get right through this thing. I would encourage you to do it first because if we really believe in the power of prayer, we really believe that God hears our prayers, then, then we should keep that a primary thing. Not that the Word of God isn't primary, but listen, we're, we're, you know, people are studying on their own and they're doing these sorts of things. The, the, the thing is, is yes, the scriptures are going to be read and there's going to be Bible study per se, but we don't want to forsake prayer. We don't want to forsake prayer. I would encourage you to pray. I would encourage you. That's how you get into each other's lives is that way. So I encourage you to do that, man. Prayer is the most powerful weapon that we have, so let's not rush through it. So we've considered the position of corporate prayer, and now let's consider the polar polarity of, uh, of corporate prayer here. Polarity. I, I, how can I, why can I say that word? Polarity. <laughs> First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and 
thanksgivings be made. Paul indicates here that there are many ways to pray corporately, that there's many prayers to pray, that it's not just one way, but there's multiple ways. And in fact, he mentions four different variations of prayer that he's urging us to. First, we are to pray prayers of supplication. This carries the idea of, uh, of asking with urgency based on need. Essentially, what you're doing is you're asking God. What did Jesus say? You, Jesus said, you know, knock and the door will be opened. You seek and you'll find. You know, he, the, the idea is if you don't ask, then you don't get. James said that. You have not because you ask not. Ask the Lord. Pray prayers of supplication. And secondly, he says, just pray, just pray prayers. This is a general term. It literally means to communicate with God, to talk to God. He cares about what you think. He cares about the things going on in your life. The Bible says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. He cares. He wants to hear what's going on in your life. And he wants you to share those things with him. He wants you to invite him into those places in your heart. God is a perfect gentleman. And although he knows everything, and we don't have to tell him what's going on in our life, but he, know, he knows already. But there's an invitation that needs to be given for the Lord to come into the various recesses of your heart and to, to begin to um, you know, access the power that he wants to give you. You have to invite him into those places. Pray. Communicate with the Lord. Share with him the things that are going on. Thirdly, we're to pray prayers of intercession. This means to fall in with someone, to fall in with somebody. It's, it carries the idea of making a formal request on the behalf of another, to intercede for them. It's the exact same word that the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 7.25 said that Jesus makes intercession for us. He goes before us on our behalf and in formal request to the Father. He makes intercession for us. Finally, we come to the word thanksgivings. Our prayers should contain prayers of thanksgivings. Plural. Plural. We, we should, there, there's many, many things to be thankful for. This word in the Greek is super cool. It's actually, the way you pronounce it is aharasia, but the way it's spelled, check this out, is E-U-C-H-A-R-I-E. S-T-I-A. If I was just going to pronounce it, I would say Eucharistia. It's where we get the English word Eucharist, thanksgivings. Now, if you grew up in a religious background and you, you, know, you, 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 you understand what that word Eucharist means, it's referring to communion and specifically to the wafer that's offered as the body of Christ. It's, it's not, there's, it doesn't actually transform into the body of Christ, by the way. It's a symbol. But isn't it cool that that word thanksgiving points us to the offering that was made on our behalf? Like there's, a, there's, there's um, some symbolism in that. Like the Lord is saying, if you're not thankful, think of my son's body that was given for you, that was broken for you. Think, think about that and, and maybe that will produce some prayers of thanksgiving. Our prayers ought to be full of a harasia, thanksgivings. Considered the position and the plurality of corporate prayer. Now let's consider the people we're to pray for in corporate prayer. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in 
high places. Paul tells Timothy here, pray firstly for all people. Now, I want to remind you who Paul is, 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 is really writing to Timothy about. Ultimately, part of the, the biggest issue that's going on in this church is there's false teachers in this church. There's people, there's wolves in sheep's clothing. There, there's, there's wolves coming in. There's people that, remember Paul said, would come from within the church and begin to twist the scriptures and, and manipulate the people in the body. Why do you think Paul says pray for all people? Oftentimes what we want to do with those kind of people is just move them out of the way and get them out of our presence. But remember, Paul doesn't tell Timothy, kick them out of the church, does he? No, he says, command them not to speak these fables, these false stories, to, to, to commit themselves to these ridiculous genealogies that elevate themselves. He doesn't say kick them out. What he says is command them. And I believe he says here, pray for them. You pray for those false teachers. You pray for those people within you that have gone their own way. And in fact, Paul mentions a couple specific people at the end of chapter 1 there where he, he mentions a couple people that have gone astray. And he said, I deliver them over to Satan. Literally, at that point, when they don't heed the, the instruction of uh, you know, the apostle, he says, you need to remove them from the church. So you give them an opportunity to receive you know, some instruction from the church. And then if they won't, they won't budge and they want to continue to peddle false doctrine and things, you have to remove them because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. But I believe Paul's telling Timothy here, you need to pray for all people, including those people. Now, maybe you're like me. I'm assuming you are. Nothing is overtaking you except for what is common to man. But the reality is that for most of us, we have, we have no problem paying, praying for the people that we love. We have no problem praying for those whom we care deeply for, our family, our friends, you know, perhaps our pastors and leaders in the church and et cetera, but, but our prayers aren't to stop there. Notice it says all people. That includes those people who, who annoy you, those people that you have conflict with, the, the enemies that are in your life, those people that seem to be against you. We're commanded to pray for them as well. The idea is that we are to pray evangelistically. Evangelistically, we are to pray that God would have his way in the hearts of all of these people, all the people we're praying for. Lord, have your way in them. If they don't know you, God, will you help them to come to know you? Will you, will you draw them? Will you give me an opportunity to speak to them or bring somebody else in their path, Lord? You pray for them evangelistically. If they know the Lord, you're praying, Lord, will you help them surrender to you? Will you help them walk in the power of your Holy Spirit? Will you help them to, um, you know, fulfill the calling that they have, whatever the case might be, but we pray evangelistically for these people that they will know the Lord and that they will walk in the Lord. So we're praying in that way. And we'll speak more about that in a moment. We are to pray for all people everywhere. Paul says here, he encourages, I want to encourage you this morning, pray for those people in your life that are bothersome. Pray for them fervently, faithfully. Pray for those people because those people obviously need the Lord. So we want to pray very very generally for all people, but very also specifically, he says, we want to pray for kings 
and for all who are in high positions. Now, notice he doesn't say those who are affiliated with the kind of animal that you like that is either red or blue. <laughs> notice he doesn't say, you know, pray for the donkey or pray for the elephant. He doesn't say that. He, he, this is a tough pill for many people to swallow, Christians included. When we start to talk about praying for leaders, people that, you know, governing authorities and, and people like that, we start to talk about praying for them. That, that becomes, well, hold on a second. I don't, I don't like that person. I don't like what they're doing, uh, this and that. Notice that there's no uh, clauses in this where he says, well, I'll do it unless you don't agree with them or unless you don't like what they're doing or unless this or that. Listen, in, in our country right now, we have leaders that are, um, in, in 10 different states right now, we have leaders that are not allowing churches to assemble at all. 10 different states. In fact, three of them are Republican states. So, you know, this isn't a matter of about a party. Here's the reality is that the enemy is at work incredibly through the leaders who are making rules that affect God's people. And Paul is saying you need to pray for those people. You know, notice he doesn't say get on Facebook and tell everybody how you feel about them. You know what I mean? How is that helping? Well, I'm going to inform the whole world about how I feel about this person. Awesome, but that didn't help. How are we going to help in this situation? How are we going to help, um, you know, Calvary Chapel God speak? Or how are we going to help Community Grace Church? Or how are we going to help the various different churches in California that are being fined every time they hold a service? How are we going to help them? We're going to pray for their leaders. We're going to pray that God will affect the leadership in California, that he will move the hearts of the governor and, and the various local leaders that, that are affecting this this stuff. We want to pray for that. Man, we're praying for um, our mayor, though, you know, our county mayor, Andy Ogles. That guy's pro-church, and he's, you know, you don't have to wear a mask. That, now, that guy can get behind. I'm going to pray for that guy. Pray for the other guy. Pray for the other guy you disagree with because he needs your prayers more. You know, so, so the idea is, is that we're praying for um, these, these people that are probably coming against us. Paul's telling Timothy, you need to pray for the local leaders in Ephesus, yes. But let me remind you who is really sitting on the throne in A.D. 63 to 64 in this time period when this letter is being written. It's Caesar Nero. Now, if you know your history regarding Rome and, 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 and the church, you know that Caesar Nero uh, was not fond of Christians. He didn't care for Christians. And he was a little crazy. But, but one of the reasons he hated believers is because believers were following a new king and were speaking about a new kingdom to come. And so that, that, was, a, that was an affront on Rome. They considered Christians enemies in, in this time period because they were following another king and they were calling someone else king. Remember, Caesar, Caesars were considered God to the people. And so when you weren't following the Caesars, you were considered an enemy of Rome. And you might recall that in maybe just a few short months after Timothy receives this letter, you know, it's very possible that it's right around that time frame where 
see where where it's it's suggested that Caesar Nero started the city of Rome on fire, and we have a a, a historian that was a, a kid during that time, a Roman historian. His name is Tacitus, and he tells a story in his in his book called Annals. Um, and it was written just a couple years after this event happened. He said that Nero set, set the city on fire for his own amusement. And when the Roman people heard this, they were very upset with Nero. So, they quick, so he quickly blamed Christians for the source of the fire. And this began a widespread persecution of Christians, which would include the likes of Peter, who was crucified upside down, and also probably Paul, who was probably beheaded in, in Rome. And that movement continues to go on to this day. Pray for your leaders, even for those who are persecuting the church. We are to wage the good warfare, not with our fists, but with our prayers, folks. We pray. Now, it's easier for us to just take action in our own, in our own manner, right? And, and, and just throw up picket signs and, and, you know, and, and all these kinds of things. But, but the Lord tells us the way that we fight our battles is through prayer, through prayer. That doesn't mean that God's not going to raise up certain voices to go and speak on behalf of the church to handle these areas, you know. We talk about abortion and, and talk about the, 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 you know, that's an abomination to God, right? So God's people are, were offended, by that because it's an abomination to our God. It's offensive to our God, right? But it's also offensive to us because we cherish life. So what are you going to do about it? And what are you going to do about it? You know, the reality is most of us are going to do nothing about it. But we can do something about it. We can pray. You don't have to join an anti-abortion group to go and picket Planned Parenthood or you don't have to fund some group that's going to blow up a a Planned Parenthood or something, you, you shouldn't do those things. What you should do is pray. We should be praying. You want to see this, this country change? Pray. It's not going to change. It does not matter who gets in uh, the White House in November, folks. It does not matter because all men are wicked. At the end of the day, our only hope is Jesus Christ. We need to pray for the Lord to move mightily in our nation and in and through the leaders of our country. We need to pray. If there's any time that we should ever be praying as a corporate body for leaders in our world today, it's right now. Right now, man. I mean, there's so many things. We could spend the, the rest of, you know, the, we could put a whole series on of all the things that are going on in the world today that affect the church and all these different things. But here's the deal is that what, all we need to do is just do this, the simple thing, and that's to pray for our leaders. We don't even have to know what's going on. We can just start praying. Lord, I pray for Chaz Mulder, who's the mayor of city of Columbia. Lord, I pray for, you know, I pray for Andy Ogles, the county mayor here. I pray for Governor Lee, the state of Tennessee. I pray for President Trump and for Vice President Mike Pence and for the, all of the people in Congress, the House of Representatives. I pray for the, all of these different people because ultimately... Um, God can change the atmosphere by changing their hearts, but only he can do that. So let's be praying, as, as Paul is encouraging Timothy, to pray for th these leaders here. He tells us to pray for kings and, and, and leaders. Next, we find the prophet of our corporate prayers. He goes on and he says, that 
We're praying for kings and for leaders that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now check this out. When, when we pray for all men, and for kings and for people in high places, uh, you know, we're, we're praying that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is a heavy statement. I don't know if you catch what he's saying right off the top, just at first glance. What he's not saying is, let's pray so that our lives are easier. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, let's pray for our leaders and for our comforts that, that you know, our lives might be peaceful. Like, we might enjoy peace in our lives, that there wouldn't be anything that's affecting us or anything. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you pray for them so that you, you might have the appearance of being, coming at peace before these leaders. In other words, you're not trying to go against what they're saying. You, you, you support them where you can support them so that you may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You follow me on this, what he's saying here? He's not saying, Lord, direct our leaders so that I can live in ease, comfort, and pleasure. That's a selfish prayer. And honestly, we don't grow when we live in ease, comfort, and pleasure. The church has always grown when it's been persecuted the greatest. So we're not praying that kind of a prayer. What Paul is saying is that we are to pray for our leaders that they would see that we're no threat to their leadership in terms of rebellion and that, uh, that, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life because we aren't bucking them rebelliously. The early church Tertullian uh, early church leader Tertullian, he said this. He said, we pray for all the emperors that God may, listen to this, may grant them long life, a secure government, a prosperous family, vi a victorious troops, a faithful senate, an obedient people that the whole world may be in peace and that God may grant both to Caesar and every man the accomplishment of their just desires. Oh, you're going to pray that for Biden if he gets in presidency? You're going to pray that for the person that you totally don't want to be in, in the office, whoever it is? Maybe it's Trump. I don't know. You're going to pray that kind of a prayer? That's the kind of prayer we should be praying. Not because we get something out of it, but because we are a representation of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you're not of this world. Right? He, he, he didn't say fight for this kingdom. No, he said go in and build the kingdom. We're called to go in and not really get preoccupied with the things that are going on in this world. Well, that's why Jesus didn't intertwine himself with politics because it's a distraction. It's not the mission of Christ. The mission of Christ is to give the gospel for sinners who need salvation. That's the mission of the church. But somehow, the, the politics have in, intertwined with, with this and, and it has a lot to do with rights. Our, our rights as people. Well, I read all through the Bible that God is in control no matter what. I read all through the Bible that when the children of Israel are in captivity, imprisoned for 430 years or 70 years or whatever the, the numbers might be, depending on where they were, that God was 100% in control of what was happening there and that he was accomplishing his purpose. So what I do is rather than throw my arms up the air and get frustrated with what's going on, I trust God. And I say, God, you know what you're doing. I don't have to worry about these things. 
you know, I, I'm going to be an example for you. I want to live in a godly and dignified way. I can tell you that I see the exact opposite on social media when it comes to politics and Christians. Not every Christian, but a lot of Christians. I see the, the exact opposite. I'm like, oh, man. And one post says, oh, man, I love Jesus so much. You stupid, you know, and it's like, whoa. That, that seems a little contradictory. I don't know, but not that anybody's perfect, but I mean, we're called to love people. And, you know, the hardest people to love are the people that totally disagree with us, right? Those are the people we need to love the most. Those are the people we need to pray the most. Here's the thing. When we, when we pray like this and, and our heart is centered on on what Paul is talking about, leading a, a peaceful and quiet life and not rebelling against the things that are going on in our world today, what we're doing is we're surrendering to God. You know that. And in fact, what we're doing is we're saying, God, you are the author of authority. So I'm surrendering. To, if I'm surrendering to the authority that you've put in place, then I'm ultimately surrendering to you. That's what Romans 13 is all about. When Paul wrote in Romans 13, 1 through 2, he said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, for those that exist that have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. <clears throat> Paul's telling us in Romans 13 that, that as we submit to governing authorities, whatever that looks like, we're submitting to God. It's a, it's, a, it's a surrender that says, God, I, I am not in control, but you are in control, and I don't have to worry about what's going to happen here. I do not have to take matters in my own hands and become an offense and, a, and become an, a, you know, a, a bad mark on Christ to accomplish whatever it is that I would like to see accomplished. I don't have to do that because God's bigger than me. And he's bigger than anything that I could do. He's, his voice is so much greater than anything that I, than anything I could say. So you just trust the Lord. You trust the Lord. You surrender to him. We're not to buck the system. MacArthur said, when the church manifests its love and goodness toward all and pours itself into compassion, concerned prayer for the lost, it will lessen the hostility that may exist. And the saints may enjoy freedom from both internal and external disturbances. Listen, the church, while uncompromising in commitment to the truth, is not to be the agitator and disruptor of the national life. That's what Paul is saying here. You don't have to try and shake things up because of what's going on. You just let the Lord do that. You pray. You be a good example. We support leaders where we can support them. Um, you know, we, we don't want to have a negative testimony. A lot of Christians in our culture today are known for what they stand against rather than known for what they stand for. That's a negative testimony. Jesus did not walk in this world and say, I'm going to tell everybody what I'm against. Everybody's going to know what I stand for. That's not what he did. He said, I'm going to let everybody know what I'm for. I'm for life. I'm for sinners coming to redemption. I'm, I'm for people being changed and transformed and reconciled to God. That's what I'm for. And that was his message, and that's our message. That message has never changed. That's our message today.
We are to be the examples of Christ to a dying world in all aspects. That's what Peter meant by 1 Peter 2.12, where he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoer, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And again, in 1 Peter 3.9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. The prophet of our corporate prayers for all men, and specifically kings and all leaders, is that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This leads us to our fifth point, which is the pleasure of corporate prayer. Verse 3, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm not telling you the truth. I'm not, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So we are to pray for all men and kings. Um, the Lord sees, when we do that, the Lord sees that is good. The Lord says, yeah, that is good. That is right. That pleases me. It pleases me when my people pray for the, the leaders and authorities, by the way, that I've put in place that I've put in place. It pleases God when we surrender to him. That's the idea. You know, uh, the, the other place in the Bible that it talks about pleasing God, we always want to please God. How do I please you, Lord? Well, there's two specific ways that I can tell you for sure is you walk by faith and you pray for these people. Those are a couple different examples of how do you, you want to please God, that's what you do. No, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. There's something that I want to do to please God. Okay. Well, he's telling you how to do it. So this is the way that we please God by doing these sorts of things. What we need to understand is the reason why it's good, the reason that it's pleasing to God is because God loves all people. Even the people that we don't love, God loves. He, he loves the people that, that you don't want anything to do with. He, he loves them as much as he loves you. He doesn't just love some human beings. He loves all human beings. Every single person that was created and designed by God, he knows the number of hairs on their head. He knows everything about them. He loves them so much. Listen, as a parent, I get that because I love my kids more than anything in this world. I love my kids more than anything in this world, and I know more about my kids than anybody else knows, but there's a lot of people that don't love my kids. They don't love my kids the way I love them. But I'm their dad. And you know what? It pleases me when I see other people loving my kids like I love my kids. That's like, whoa, that's awesome. I love that. That is so cool. That's God to us. Like God loves it when we walk down the street and we see somebody down and, you know, our, 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 you know we want to turn from them, but we turn towards them when we begin to minister to them. That's God's, that's God's creation. He may not be God's child. He may not be redeemed yet. You don't, you're not born a child of God. You are born again a child of God. But when you, that person has a special and unique design by God. He is special to him whether he has come to Christ or not. And so when I turn and I minister to that person, God is like, that's, that's good. That's pleasing to me. I like that. He wants us to minister. Why? Because God is a Savior. 
That's why Paul says that he's God is our Savior. He desires that every human being would come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his will, folks. That's what Paul's saying. This is God's will that all would come to repentance, not just some. So why is it then that not all men would be saved if that's God's will? If that's what God wants, why isn't that happening? Because everything that God wants happens, right? Not in this instance. Because God uh, has given us a salvation that is conditional in this sense. We have to receive it. You don't just get salvation. Like, he just doesn't dump salvation on the world and you have salvation. You have to get it. You have to receive it. You have to personally say, I acknowledge what Jesus Christ has done for me because I'm a sinner. I've died. I, I, I'm, a, I'm not a good person. I, I've, I've missed the mark. I've sinned against you, God. I need a Savior. And, you know, Jesus Christ becomes the Redeemer for you. He's the Savior. He's, his blood washes your sin away. So when you come by faith in, in believing in what Jesus has done for you, you're redeemed. It's conditional. Salvation is conditional in that sense. You have to receive it. Not everybody just gets it. You have to ask for it. Um, David Guzik said, God won't fulfill his desire to save all men at the expense of making men robots that worship him from simply being programmed to do so. Salvation is in your DNA. God intertwined it. He programmed it in. You need a savior. When the fall happened, the DNA was corrupted in some way, but the Lord put a need in our hearts for a Savior. And we search our whole lives trying to find that. And the only person that can fulfill that perfectly is Jesus. He is our Savior. He's the only one that can save us. And God cares about people because He's a Savior. Um, that's why He sent His Son. Paul goes on to drop some theology here. He says, there's one God. He goes on to say, God is Savior. But, and then he talks about there's one God. The Bible makes that clear. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Our God is a monotheistic God, not polytheistic. And the reason Paul put that in here is because in Ephesus, they believe in many gods. In Greek mythology, and in fact, in almost every other religion in the world, they believe in different gods. You go to Hindu religion, dude, their, their, their temples are filled with gods, all kinds of different gods. You know, so you have all these different gods that are being worshipped, but our God is one. However, in God's economy, one is three and three is one. What do I mean by that? Well, the Godhead is one entity that manifests itself in three distinct peoples, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All God, one in God, but they are separate and distinct, and they have different roles. Um, th th there, there is only one God that manifests himself in three persons, all equally God but distinct persons. There's also only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The Lord said in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God has only made one way. And some people don't like that, that they think that's a little narrow-minded, but that's the way that the Lord did it. There is only one mediator, and his name is Jesus. Listen to me. You do not have to go to a man to mediate between you and God. 
If you come to me and you go, hey, will you pray for me because you got a better connection with the big guy upstairs? I'm going to say, dude, are you kidding me? Are you serious? You think I have a better connection than you do? You have Jesus in your heart? We got the same connection. Like, I don't have, like, uh, you know, uh, Google Fiber and you got, like, you know, HughesNet or something. That, that's not the way it works. I, I have, uh, I'm sorry if you got HughesNet because I've had it and it is horrible. But, but you got the same connection I do because there's one mediator and we're, we're all going through that one mediator, Jesus Christ. He is the man Jesus Christ. Paul said that although Jesus is fully God, he is also fully human. He's fully man. And in fact, he tells us this story in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born of the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father." Jesus Christ is God who became a man so that he could mediate on our behalf by becoming a ransom for all. You know what that word ransom means? It means to buy back from the marketplace. I want you to get this picture. I was thinking about this this morning. This is what Jesus did. He came into the world. He went into the marketplace where they sell slaves. And he saw you. And he said, I want that one, and 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 that one. And he said, I will pay the ransom. I will buy back from the marketplace. He bought your soul back on the cross. That is amazing. He came to be a ransom. And, and, and he gave himself up for you. And so we are justified by Christ alone. That's why the path is narrow that leads to life. Because there's only one way. And, and so many people will not, so many people reject it because it's too narrow. But the Lord said, there's only one way and I'm the ransom, so you have to choose that way. Paul goes on here and he tells us that, that it's this message that he was appointed. It's the ransom message. It's the gospel that Paul was appointed to to go preach to the Gentiles. Isn't this interesting? Because Paul, if you know anything about his background, he's the Jew of Jews, right? He, he's the, I'm not going to say the greatest Jew that ever lived because I don't know. But he, he calls himself the Jew of Jews. He was a Jew among Jews. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He, did, he followed the law perfectly. Like the, but the pedigree of Paul uh, as Saul is unbelievable in the Jewish faith. Isn't it interesting that God would take the, what I would consider a top-notch Jew and he would say, I'm going to make you an instrument for the Gentiles. I'm going to give you a message called the gospel and I want you to go take it into the Gentiles. Here's what I want you to know. What he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to make you the Jew of Jews fulfill what the Jews were supposed to do in the first place and that is to be the light of the world to go take the light into the world, not hold back who God is to the world, but to shine the light forth, to become a light to the Gentiles so that they can know who God is, but they didn't do that. 
Isn't it interesting that God would take the Jew of Jews to do that? That he would give that message to Paul and say, you go take it, Paul. You fulfill what the Jews did not do when they held the light back. You go take the light of the gospel into the world. That's what he did. Paul was committed to that message and that message alone. He said, listen, um, I am going to speak about Christ and Christ alone. I'm not going to talk about anything else. I am committing myself to the message of the gospel. Listen, you don't have to be an apologetic person. You don't have to know the, the, the Bible backwards and forwards and be able to understand all the different arguments on every passage. What you do need to understand is God gave you a message called the gospel. And you need to take the gospel into the world. That's the message that you need to stick to. It's a script. We don't have to make it up. It's done for us. We have to go into the world and say, listen, um, as it is written, no one is good. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have gone astray. Um, together they've become worthless. No one is good. No, not even one. Romans, 10, Romans 3, 10 through 12. That's our verse for the kids for youth group this week. I'm learning it. So, uh, you know, that, the reality is, is that's the gospel message that we need to understand. The people need to know that, that we're sinners, but God sent a Savior. That's our message. Paul said, I'm committed to that message. He goes on, last point, the posture of prayer. Verse 8, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The first thing that we notice here is who Paul is calling out to pray. Not just in the church, by the way, but everywhere. He's calling men. This isn't a general term. This isn't like men used in the Bible where he's talking about all people. He's talking specifically men. He said the men need to pray everywhere. The men need to be praying people. You know, and, and, and really, ultimately, the point of it is, is that there is a pattern of leadership that God has placed in life. And a lot of people don't like the idea of it. They think it's archaic and they, don't, they think it's, you know, kind of domineering or whatever the case might be. I don't know. Um, but, but the reality of it is, is, is God created and orchestrated the world. He gets to do what he wants. That's the way I look at it. And he put things in place for a reason. And he's patterned the world in a way where he said the male is to be the leader of the home, the male is to be the leader of the church, the, there, there, there's a male leadership role that men have that they need to fulfill. And in fact, you see in the Garden of Eden that God tells Eve, you're going to pine for his position. You're going to long to be the man. And so from the fall of mankind, there's been this battle between men and women to be the leader. There can only be one leader. And God says it's patterned in a specific way that the male is supposed to be the leader of the home. He's supposed to be the leader of the church. And we'll talk about this later. It doesn't mean that women can't do anything or make decisions or you do everything your husband says. We're going to talk about that uh, here, here later in, as we work through these verses. But, but the reality is, is that as the saying goes, you know, so goes the man, so goes the family, so goes the church, so goes the nation. And that's reality. That is the truth. Men hold a, a specific position by God, and he wants them to be the leader. He wants to be them the example as well. That's why he said men need to pray. Now, I'll point out the obvious for illustrative purposes, but generally women far outnumber men in most things relating to church, including prayer meetings. 
women generally are seeking spiritual things more than men are. And I know we're super simple. You know, it's just like feed, eat, eat, sleep, play. Eat, sleep, play. We're like kids, you know. So you got to try and corral us around. But we are called to be leaders for real. You know, it's not a suggestion in the Bible. It's, it's, it's a command. And what we're seeing in our country is we're seeing men continually being degraded. We're seeing men continually being sissified. We're seeing men that are no longer allowed to be men because that's not politically correct or that's not... Listen, we don't live in this world. We live in this world, but we're not of this world, and we follow a different program. And so we can't fall within the lines of, you know, the things that are, that are going on in our culture today. And, and we'll get into very specific things about that, but I just want to say this to the men in, in this church. Listen, God is calling you to be a man. When Jesus walked out, one of my favorite things that I, in the Bible is when Jesus walked out before Pilate and the people, Pilate said, behold, the man. And Jesus was completely shredded by being whipped. And he said, behold the man. That's what we're called to be, the sacrificial lamb of the family. We are called to be the leader, to go into the battle, to do these kinds of things. Don't push your wife out in front of you. You step into it. You be the man. We, we're not seeing that in our culture today, and we need to see that. We, we, we need to see men step up and be men and lead spiritually their homes. You know, I can tell you many, many families have lots and lots of problems because of that issue where the roles are reversed and the, the husband's trying to get the leadership position and the wife won't let him or, or he won't do it so she's taken over and, and it's, it's a mess. That's not God's design. That's why these people end up getting divorced because there's a, there's, a, there's a battle of the authority that God put in place and no one's backing down in that situation. Well, you need to humble yourself and follow what the Lord says. Men need to be men. Men need to be praying. Listen, the reason why guys don't want to pray is because it seems weak. Do I really need God to do Let me tell you something. Yes, you do. You really need God to be on your side. You really need God to enter into the battle that you're going before. You really need God to do that. You can't do that. You need, you need the Lord. You need to be men that are praying. Notice, he says, lifting up holy hands. Does that mean perfect hands? No. The word holy means to be separate. It means that your hands are dedicated for his purposes. I am separated from the world, Lord. I'm going to do the things that you're calling me to do. I'm lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. This isn't, this isn't coincidence that he puts that in there because that's us. We want to, you know, oftentimes we, we're angry in our prayer. We're angry in the things that we're trying to accomplish. We're, we're quarreling with people to try and get our way in these different things. He says, listen, stop that. Stop that. Depend on me. Be the example to your family. Be the example to the church, guys. Step into that role. Be men. So here we find the priority of corporate prayer in the modern, modern uh, in, in the early church is also the very same thing that God is calling us to do in the modern church. We are to be men of prayer. And may Calvary lead the way in that. May we start today and say we're going to be these kind of men. We're going to be the kind of men that are going to step into uh, the biblical role that we're called to and we're going to do the things that God is asking us to do. 
The hour is drawing near, folks. And, and it's, it's, it's time for us to commit our hearts to prayer, commit our, our lives to the Lord, and let him do whatever he wants to do with us. Amen? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and just for your goodness in our lives, and we thank you for just the exhortation this morning, Lord. We pray that you would have your way as we prepare for communion now, Lord. Father, the exhortation that's gone out, would you quicken the hearts that need to be quickened this morning, God? Will you convict and will you empower those who need that this morning, God, to step into the role that they're, they're called to? Lord, it's, it's, it's your will for us to be these kind of people. So we ask now, Lord, that we would, as we surrender ourselves to you, that you'd have your way. And we ask you to prepare our hearts now as we pass out the elements here, Lord, and we just pray that you would move mightily in these next few moments of our gathering together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.